Well, we're going to try to tackle two questions today. Uh, we'll spend most of our time on the first one. It's the, the kind of the bigger and more complex of the two topics. But it wasn't until I started getting into the week and looking at these two, I realized just how closely connected they are. And I've really enjoyed uh, getting into these. Now, I have to admit, the more I study this, the more I realize how little I know and how unqualified I am to even teach this. So that's my disclaimer right up front. And there's so much, so much to learn on, on, especially on this first topic. So here is the first question. It comes from Joe Swan in Tennessee. And he says, can you give a quick rundown? (laughs) Let's get rid of that word quick. That's not going to work. All right, of the covenants of the Bible, what they are about and whom God covenants with. Also tell newer ones build upon and are supported by the preceding ones and do not replace them. So, covenants. Uh, there's First of all, there's one thing. I just did this this morning. I've always threatened to do this, and I finally did it. I tore two pages out of my Bible. The first page I tore out is this one right here that says Old Testament. That one's gone. And the other one I tore out is the one right there after Malachi before Matthew that says New Testament or New Covenant. That one's gone. They're not coming back. Because that is fake news. That's fake news. That is not true. This is not a covenant. It contains covenants, describes covenants. But these are our scriptures. And what this calls the Old Testament or Old Covenant is not an Old Covenant. It's the Bible that Yeshua studied and lived by and the apostles studied and lived by. It's the Bible that James says, be a doer of it. Be a doer of the word, not a hearer only, deceiving your own selves. It's the one that they followed. It's the one that Paul got all of his theology from. It is our scriptures were to study it. It's all God-breathed. And what they call the New Testament is not a new covenant. It contains the Gospels, the stories about Yeshua. It contains the book of Acts, which is the story and the history of the early Messianic community and how the Gospel spread among the Gentiles. It contains letters from Paul to various communities through Asia Minor. It contains John's prophecy and revelation and other things all through there. It also tells us about a covenant that Yeshua renewed with the people. But to call that latter part of the Bible the new covenant and the first part the old covenant, you think, well, I don't need the old. I was replaced by the new. So let's go with the new. And I think I've told you before about a, a pastor friend of mine years ago. We were at lunch together, and he's talking about the, his, his church that he's running and issues and things. And, and in the course of the conversation... The Torah came up, and and he said, I just want to be a New Testament church. That's all I want. I just want to be a New Testament church. And uh, I said, well, Bob, there are two things the New Testament church did not have. It did not have a New Testament, and it did not have a church. And it's like, I hope he got that. But it's true. Okay? So, we need to tear those two pages out. And uh, we must realize this is one unified book with one mind behind it, the mind of God, who inspired it from Genesis through Revelation. And he did it through a a, a bunch of different men with different personalities, but always it's God's voice that's coming through this. It's one unified word. It is living. 
Okay? It is alive. In Hebrews, where it's talking about the Old Testament, it says, for the word of God is living. And it's effective. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's powerful. It's very much a living thing. So, when we think of covenants, don't think of these two parts of the scriptures. This is all one book together. Now, the word for covenant is the word brit. Brit or brit. And um, <clears throat> that's where we get the word brit chadashah. Covenant or new. New covenant or renewed covenant. Uh, you may have heard of a Jewish organization called B'nai B'rith or B'nai B'rit. means sons of the covenant. Uh, when a little boy is eight days old, they perform Brit Milah, the covenant of circumcision. So you hear this word Brit a lot. It has nothing to do with British, though. Some people try to push that, but no, it doesn't work. And here's what a covenant is. I kept kind of uh, evolving the definition a bit. It's an agreement. But more than that, it's an agreement that includes a promise. But more than that, this promise always leads to a partnership. And that's very important to realize. If you um, talk to, your, to a friend on the phone, you say, let's meet at the coffee shop at 2 o'clock tomorrow. Okay, we'll meet at the coffee shop at 2 o'clock tomorrow. That's an agreement. But things can go wrong. It's not a promise because your car breaks down or you get ill or whatever. You can't go. But a good example of a, a covenant that many of you have experienced or will experience is the covenant of marriage. Marriage is a wonderful covenant. And a covenant always is between two parties. These parties can be individuals. They can be groups. It can be an individual and a group. And marriage is between one man and one woman. No exceptions. It is mutual in other words, there are stipulations that go both ways, or it can be one-sided, where one person says to the other, I promise this is what I'm going to do for you. You don't need to do anything at all. It could be one way like that. Or it could be mutual, like in a marriage. The man makes his vows to the wife, what he's going to do. She makes her vows to the man. But that she's going to keep the stipulations, her side of the covenant. And there are almost always stipulations. It have to be if it's a two-way covenant. And there's always some kind of a sign of the covenant. Because we are forgetful creatures. So in marriage, the sign is a ring. Pretty much all societies, it's a ring. There might be other societies do something different. But Western societies, it's a ring. And husbands, if you don't wear a ring to show that you're in covenant with your wife, bless her and get one. I think almost all the men wear one. But when I was a kid, men didn't wear a wedding ring. The women did. But I'm glad men wear them now. Because we need to be reminded. And, and you know, because you know how it is, guys, the women just throw themselves at you, but they see the ring. That's protection, all right? Yeah. I hate when I leave house without my ring on. It's, it's, it's trouble. <laughs> so... <laughs> Robin's watching the kids. I can say anything I want. All right. Now, the question is, how many biblical covenants are there? How many are there? And it's funny, if you do some research and you start listening to people list them, some will say there are four. And others say, oh, no, there's five. 
And others say, no, there are six. Some say there are seven. Some say there are eight. Some say there are nine. And we can keep going. But we want to look at what are the covenants where God makes a covenant with people. And it's called a covenant, a real covenant. And there are four, four basic ones. Here they are. There's the Noahic covenant. This is the covenant God made with Noah. The first time the word covenant appears in the Bible is in Genesis 6.18, where God says he's going to make a, a covenant with Noah. He's going to make a Brit with Noah. But the, the, the covenant is really expanded and explained a little further over in Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 to 17. And you can read it about there. Now, let's look at what the signs of these covenants are. So, what's the sign of the covenant God made with Noah? The rainbow, of course. The rainbow. Very obvious. Everybody can see it. It's up in the sky, this big thing. And it's a promise God made to Noah that I will never again wipe out life from this planet. You can rest assured, I'm not going to do that again. Sometimes I think God almost had to do it once, just so we know that he could and would. But he says, I'll never do that again. And then, over further in Genesis, uh, in Genesis 12, God brings up the subject of covenant with Abraham. And then this covenant is really seen in detail when it's, when it's created over in chapter 15. It's referred to many times through the scriptures. And God made a covenant with Abraham, this one man. And what's so unique about this covenant is one of my favorite topics. And if you haven't studied on this, you can go back to one of the Genesis series we've done and, and uh, listen to the study on Genesis 15. Because what's unique is God is making a blood covenant with Abraham. Blood covenants would be made between two men. Two men who are equals. And it was mutual. And it would be a covenant they make because they have mutual respect and love for one another. And they make this covenant because we promise to protect one another. And if one of us dies, the other will take care of our wife or wives our kids, our property, and raise our children in our memory and according to our standards of living. If you die first, I will do that for you. A blood covenant. It's like we, we walk in one blood, one life force. And so God, the creator of the universe, initiates a blood covenant with a man, a Gentile, who used to be an idol worshiper. God initiates it. No man would ever dream of initiating it would be impossible to initiate a blood covenant with God but God initiates it with Abraham this speaks of God's great great humility and since he knew that Abraham would not be able to live long enough to take care of God's kids should God die I mean it's just bizarre it it, it can't happen God's going to live for eternity Abraham is going to die so everything about this covenant was totally one sided this is why when they cut the covenant and they laid the animals open, God made a deep sleep going, Abraham, Abraham, you just, you just sleep. I'm going to go through these pieces. I'm going to walk in the blood because I'm going to keep the stipulations for both of us. And if you fail any of the stipulations, I'm the one who takes the hit. 
You talk about a covenant of grace. There's nothing quite like it in the scriptures, except for one other, one other one I can think of. And um, so what's the sign of the Abrahamic covenant? What was the thing? This is the sign of the covenant. What was it? Circumcision. Very different from a rainbow (laughs) for the whole world to see. This is a very personal one. And the covenant was born in the flesh. And so each little boy born in Abraham's lineage uh, at the age of eight days, uh, they'd be circumcised. This private, permanent sign in the flesh that they are in this covenant that uh, God initiated with Abraham. And then later, in Exodus 19, we see God making another covenant with Abraham's children. And this is the Mosaic covenant initiated through Moses after God brings them by grace through faith, by the blood and body of the Lamb out of bondage and uh, the death and the horror of Egypt. He brings them to Mount Sinai and God initiates a covenant with them. God's basically saying, I redeemed you. After all, I promised Abraham I'd take care of his kids. That would be you and I have redeemed you. I am rescuing you. But there's a principle in scripture, what God redeems, God owns. Because redeem means to purchase, and if you purchase something, you own it. If you've been redeemed by the blood of the lamb, you don't belong to yourself anymore. You are property, bought and paid for, not your own. You've been bought with a price. You belong to him. So don't rob God of what he owns. And so he brings it to Mount Sinai. And we'll look a little bit later at what the details are here. But what was the sign of this covenant? Mm, Not exactly the Torah. I can see how you say that. There's another sign. No, that is basically the essence of the covenant. That's, That's the heart and soul, the stipulations. Sabbath. This is the sign. When you step away from the world 24 hours a week and you make it holy and you guard it because I'm your God, we're going to spend this time together. Sabbath is like God's wedding ring that he gave to Israel and to all people who are his. Right? The Sabbath. What a sign. You know, if you're trying to find a way to witness to people around you, Sabbath is a wonderful, wonderful way to do it. When your buddies are all together, your girlfriends are all together, and say, oh, let's plan such and such for Saturday, two weeks from now. And you think, well, I'm sorry, you go on and have fun, but I can't. Well, why not? They just invited you to witness about who you are, who your God is. You have an open invitation. You don't start preaching at them, but they see this person has a loyalty to God and a reverence for him. And uh, what a way to witness to people when they see you out of step with the culture of the world. But how can you witness to them if you're exactly in step with the culture of the world? And then a fourth one is the Davidic covenant. And you find it, uh, most of the details in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And um, this one's a little trickier. God makes a promise to David that his throne will endure forever. But what is the sign 
of this covenant. There's actually two. So you can think about that for a bit, and we'll come back to it in a moment. Now, the other covenants people, here if you want a more complete list of what you might see out there, some people say there's an Edenic covenant uh, when God told Adam and Eve, don't eat from that tree over there, that that was a covenant. Because if you do, here's the stipulation. If you violate what I'm telling you, then you're going to die. And then there's the Adamic covenant, Adamic covenant, I'm sure I pronounce it. And Hosea does refer to a covenant with Adam, but the word covenant's not used there in that part of the story of Genesis. But there, I guess you could say there was a covenant there. And then you've got the Noahic and the Abrahamic and Mosaic. And then I like this, the Palestinian covenant. The covenant that the land of Palestine would be given to the Jewish people. Um, you notice I put that in quotes. There's no such thing as Palestine. There never was a Palestine, never will be a Palestine. Palestine is the same Hebrew word as Philistine. Same Hebrew letters. You know, Hebrew is only consonants. You got the P or PH, the L, the S, and the T, and the N. Philistine, Palestine, same thing. Uh, the Romans, when they kicked the Jews out of Israel, to insult them, they started calling the land of Israel the land of the Philistines, Israel's enemies. And so it's like, Shame on Christian commentators who call Israel the land of Palestine. All right? I know they don't mean, uh, or hope they don't mean anything ill by that, but it really is a gross error. It should never be called that. The Philistines themselves didn't come from Israel. They were squatters that came in from outside, and they were a pain in the neck to the Jewish people for many, many years. So... And the modern Palestinians are not descendants of those original Philistines, even though they've taken on the name. So it's very confusing, very complicated, but Israel is not Palestine. There is no such thing as Palestine. And there's the Davidic covenant. And then some people say, well, we have to put in the new covenant that Yeshua made with the the disciples, with us. And uh, there are references that we'll look at. But then there's a covenant God made with the priest. And then there's a covenant of peace that got established with Phineas over in the uh, book of Numbers. And there's a covenant that Abraham made with Abimelech. There's a covenant Isaac made with Abimelech about the wells. And uh, Jacob made a covenant with Laban that they wouldn't cross over and hurt each other. And you see all kinds, Jonathan and David made a covenant of friendship. You see covenants all through the Bible. So how do we distill it down to the ones that are most important? And it always comes back to these four. Now, new covenants do not replace previous covenants. They build upon them. A previous covenant provides the foundation for subsequent covenants. And I think, I hope we'll see that. So what I want us to do is take a look at these four foundational covenants. And there really are just four of them. And... Let's understand what they mean. I've mentioned already that the covenant God makes with Noah is that humanity will not be destroyed again. So I'll just put humanity preserved. God is going to preserve the human race. 
even though the human race that he is preserving and sparing still goes back and commits sins, as in the days of Noah, even though much of the human race deserves the same fate that Noah's generation got, God's made a promise, and he's not going to go back on it. So now the question is, all right, I've got all these people I've promised not to wipe out, but they keep sinning. What am I going to do? Now, God always knew what he was going to do, but we're just kind of playing along here. What is the next thing that has to be done? How do I begin to bring truth and life to this human race that continues to rebel against me? It doesn't even live in fear of what I've done before and of who I am and what I'm capable of doing. What do I do with them? Well, after God confused the languages there at Babel, and if you look at the chapter there in Genesis, he breaks up the human race into 70 different groups. It's called the 70 nations, or the 70 tongues. 70 different languages, 70 different people groups. They scatter north, south, east, and west. And then you come to chapter 12, and God calls this one man, and he says, Abram, I want you to follow me. I'm going to do something special with you. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 12 and start with verse 1. Now, Adonai said to Abram, go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. So now there's going to be a 71st nation. I'm going to take you, leave, everything familiar, and out of you, Abraham, I'm going to make nation number 71. And this is going to be a unique nation. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, ready for this, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So there are a couple things here that God promises Abraham. He promises him the land the land of Israel, and he promises him lots and lots of children. So many children that if you could count the grains of sand on the sea or count the stars in the sky, you could count Abraham's children. Problem was, Abraham's old and his wife is barren. They have no children. And Abraham means Avram. His original name means father of Avram, many, father of many. Later, God changes his name. He still doesn't have kids. He changes his name from Avram to Avraham, which means father of multitudes. (laughs) It's almost like, God, are you making fun of me? But finally, when Abraham is 100 years old and Sarah is 90, Sarah has a baby, Isaac. And through Isaac, there's Jacob. Through Jacob, their 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. They just start multiplying, and they become this nation that God promised. And what's God going to do through Abraham? Did you catch it? All the families of the earth, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, I may not have room to get it up here, but if you're taking notes, you can put it in there. All the earth will be blessed. That's so important. 
God wants to do a work in the world because the world is just a mess. He takes this one man of this one man, almost like a seed that's going to give birth to a forest. I'm going to bless the entire world through you, Abraham, through your kids. Well, Abraham's kids didn't behave themselves. Uh, Some of them did, others didn't. Um, You know, Jacob's two sons, Simeon and Levi, they go in and wipe out the city of Shechem. That wasn't too good. And, um, And then some of his other kids, we don't have to get into the details now, but they didn't do so well. And then uh, they get jealous of their next, the youngest brother, Joseph. And so they sell him. They're going to kill him, but they decide to make some money off the deal. And they sell him to slave traders who take him to Egypt. And then they lie to their father, Jacob, that Joseph has been killed by some wild beast. That wasn't too cool. And, uh, but eventually, through that, Joseph becomes the savior of the world. This great famine that hits the world, Joseph is the one who lays up food, and all the world started coming to Egypt, sending Egypt for food. Because of Joseph, God used him, he saved them. And his brothers come. He recognizes them. They don't recognize him. It's been a lot of years. To them, he just looks like an Egyptian. And, um, And so he hides his identity because he's there to also restore his brothers. It's what an amazing story, one of my favorites. But eventually they move to Egypt and they bring Jacob, their father, with them. Seventy souls go to Egypt. And over the years, the 70 grows into hundreds of thousands, hundreds and hundreds of thousands. But they also wind up in slavery in Egypt, making bricks for the, the Pharaoh. So God reaches down and rescues them because God has made a covenant with who? Abraham. I want to take care of your kids, Abraham. And so he brings them to Mount Sinai. He brings them out by the blood and body of the lamb. And they come to Sinai. And then this is what God says. If you go to Exodus 19, verses 3 through 6, it says this, Moses went up to God, and Adonai called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus... Uh, you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, quote, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among my amsegula, my peculiar people, among all the peoples, my treasured people, among all the peoples of the earth, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So, in the Mosaic Covenant, God is taking these people, these slaves, bringing them to himself, redeeming them out of Egypt, He's making them his bride. He gives them the Sabbath as a wedding ring. Everything at Sinai is a picture of a Jewish wedding. And they're going to be his representatives, his representatives to the world. And they're going to be a kingdom, a kingdom of what? Of priests. Now the Levites were the priestly tribe, but when it came to the whole world, the Jewish people to be as priests. What did priests do? They represented God to others. 
They brought others to God. They taught God's word to others. That's what the job of the priests were. They were like a ladder. They were like a a channel to bring people to God and God to the people. And in addition, they're going to be a holy people. You're going to be my representatives on earth. How did they do? Not so good. Not so good. God makes this covenant with Abraham. Abraham kind of messes up. He made mistakes, but what a godly man he was. He always got back on his feet. God makes a covenant with his children, Israel. Gives them his Torah. And um, uh, they keep falling. Keep breaking the Torah. Then they have to go into exile. One time in Babylon. They went to exile in Babylon. And and they come back. They would do good for a while, as we read in Ezra and Nehemiah. But then later, they fall away. And now they're in an exile again. This is the, the Roman exile. The Romans drove them out of the land 2,000 years ago. They <sighs> just keep stumbling. But later on, God made another covenant. Found another unique man, a Jewish man, a son of Abraham. His name is David. And he establishes a covenant with David. And uh, you can read about it in 2 Samuel 7. We'll read verses 12 and 13. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, God's speaking to David, when you, when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your seed after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So I asked you earlier, what's the sign of the Davidic covenant? Here it is, a son. The sign of the covenant God made with David is a son. He will have a son who will rule on the throne of David forever. But there's a second thing. There's a second thing as well. If you read a little bit further, you'll see that there will also be a temple. So the two signs of the Davidic covenant are a son who will be the king forever and a temple. A king and priest. Here are a few more passages. Uh, Psalm 89, uh, verses 3 and 4, and we'll look at verses 27 to 29. Says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. And then on to verse 27, I also shall make him my firstborn. I'll make him my firstborn, the seed of David, the highest of the kings of the earth, my loving kindness that I will keep for him forever. And my covenant shall be confirmed to him. So I will establish his descendants forever and his throne as the days of heaven. And Jeremiah 33, verses 20 and 21. Thus says Adonai, if you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night so that day and night will not be at their appointed time, then my covenant may also be broken with David. So what's the likelihood of God's covenant with David being broken? Pretty unlikely. So far, day and night, it comes right on schedule every day. My covenant with David, my servant, so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne and Levitical priest, with the Levitical priests, my ministers, that will reign and, I'm sorry, work and serve in my temple. Okay? But if you read more in Second Samuel 7, you'll see that the son, if you go a little bit further, there'll be the temple as well, because the son, Solomon, will build the temple. 
Of course, that's a picture of David's great son, Yeshua. So, what is he promising David? An eternal kingdom. There's going to be an eternal kingdom. It's going to rule all the nations of the earth. And I want you to notice in these covenants, though they're made to Jewish individuals and the Jewish nation, the, the implications affect the entire world. Everybody. Because of the 71st nation that came from Abraham, the whole world is affected. The whole world changes. So, which is the covenant that seems to be missing? Which covenant seems to be missing? The new covenant. Why isn't it on the four? Why isn't it on the list? Because it's not a new covenant, it's a renewed covenant. A renewed covenant. You see, the word for new in Hebrew, chadash, can mean new or renewed. We have to look at the context to understand which way we should translate it. In Hebrew, there's no difference. Here are a couple of examples. In Psalm 51.10, it says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. That word renew is the word chadash. Lamentations 5.21, Restore us to you, Adonai, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Again, the same word chadash, but it's going to be translated new or renewed. So, we have to make a decision. Is this a new covenant? Or is it a previous covenant that is renewed? And if we look at the context, I think you'll agree that it's not a new covenant. It is a renewed covenant. But which one? See, here's the problem, folks. This is where all, this is where all the difficulties come in. The Noahide covenant, completely one side. God just says, I promise you I'll never wipe out humanity again. Here's my promise. Here's the rainbow. You look at it, you know I'll keep my word, and he has. The Abrahamic covenant Abraham, I've chosen you. If you'll just come across here and follow me to this land, I'll give you the land. I'll give you a gazillion kids. I'm going to bless you, and uh, I'll bless those who bless you, and all the, all the people in the world are going to be blessed through you. And even though Abraham tripped and fell on his face a few times, there were really no repercussions. God didn't punish him and uh, everything. Abraham just learned from his mistake and got on his feet and kept on going. But here's the problem. It's this right here. This is the one that's kind of niggling, this Mosaic covenant, the Torah. You see, the Torah makes things difficult because in the Torah, if you violate the stipulations, there are serious consequences. If you steal... You have to pay back double, sometimes more, depending on what you stole. If you kill, you're put to death. If you practice sexual perversion or witchcraft and other things, you are stoned to death. Um, If you commit adultery, you're executed. And uh, so there are some serious ramifications when you violate these stipulations that we've all sinned, we've all come short of God's glory. And we have a problem. You see, the problem with the Torah is that it makes sin illegal. If there's no speed limit, nobody can pull you over for speeding. You're not breaking any law. The moment there's a speed limit, 
You can go down the road the same speed you went yesterday, but now you'll hear sirens, you'll be pulled over, and you're going to have to pay a fine. Because now what you did yesterday is illegal today. And the Torah comes along to make sin illegal. It's the law. And this is a problem. This is a real problem. Because the letter of the law brings death. Because there are a lot of capital crimes in the Torah. And if it doesn't bring a capital death of execution, it can bring spiritual death because you're separated from the community, you're cut off from the people, your fellowship with God is damaged. And uh, that's the problem. The Torah is a problem. Davidic covenant, it's pretty much one-sided. He wants David and his children to walk in his ways, but we know David's children did not. Even Solomon, the son of David, he, he really messed up in some serious ways. So what are we to do about this? Well, let's go and, and research this and see how this plays out. By the way, in Genesis 26, verses 4 and 5, God is talking to Isaac, Abraham's son. He says, I will multiply your descendants, Isaac, as the stars of heaven will give your descendants all this land, all these lands. He's making the same promise to Isaac he made to Abraham, his father. And then Isaac's son, Jacob, later he makes, God makes the same covenant with Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And by your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice. He obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my Torah. That's what it says in Hebrew. Yours probably says instructions, correct? That word in Hebrew can be either plural or singular. It depends on how you pronounce it. And since there are no vowels in the Torah scroll, you can pronounce it either way. I just go, and go ahead and pronounce it Torah. You could translate it Torahs, instructions, but it's Torah. The Torah wasn't written, but Abraham kept it. So God wanted Abraham's children to keep it as well. But this time he wrote it down, he codified it. He says, this time you keep it, and if you don't, there's real problems. Now, when God established the Mosaic Covenant with Moses and the children of Israel. He spoke from Mount Sinai, Ten Commandments, some instructions about altars, and then other things which we call the Mishpatim. He, he spoke these things. Moses wrote them down in a book. And then in chapter 24 of Exodus, in verse 7, it says, Then he, Moses, took the book of the covenant, and he read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that Adonai has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. So they agree to the stipulations. Because they want to be a kingdom of priests. They want these blessings that come with obedience to God. They want to be blessed the way Abraham was who kept the Torah. So he said, we'll do it. So what does Moses do? So he took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. All right, get the picture? He had a basin of blood from a sacrifice. He starts sprinkling it on the people. Everybody gets splattered with a few drops of blood. And he says, Behold the blood of the covenant, which Adonai has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now let's fast forward. Yeshua, on the last day he was alive on earth before his crucifixion. It's a Passover Seder. And what do we celebrate at Passover. Israel being brought out 
of Egypt by the blood of the lamb. Blood's put on the door. So God says, I see the blood, I'll pass over you. You're all good. They ate the body of the lamb inside. They had strength to leave slavery in Egypt the next morning. So while they're celebrating the Passover Seder, and Luke, uh, this chapter in Luke, I think the word Passover is used six times. It's a Passover Seder, six or seven. It says, and when he, Yeshua, had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What is the this he's talking about? The Passover Seder. You do the Passover Seder in memory of what God did for Israel on Passover in Egypt. But now every Passover when you do this, I want you to think what I'm doing on Passover. I'm going to go die as a lamb of God. And through my death, you're going to be redeemed from a much worse kind of slavery. Not physical slavery, but slavery of the soul, slavery of the spirit. And you're going to be passed into freedom, freedom from sin. You're going to be passed from death to life, from slavery to freedom, through my body and through my blood. So next, he says, and in the same way, he took the cup after that, after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the renewed covenant in my blood. Now, what did Moses say? He sprinkled the blood on the people, said, behold, the blood of the covenant. Yeshua comes and puts the blood in the form of wine and a cup. says, this is the blood of the renewed covenant. And what are they supposed to do with this? Sprinkle it on themselves? They drink it. It goes inside. The blood of the Mosaic covenant went on the outside. But when God renews the covenant through Yeshua, it goes on the inside. This is so profound important. I want you to see some other connections as well. You notice that he takes the bread and he broke it. See, and he says, this is my body, right? This is a picture of my body. Now, follow me with this. Some of you are aware of this, but if you're not, it's a good review and you really need to hear this. When the lamb was killed on Passover day, the blood and the body were separated. The blood went on the outside of the house for God to see. When God says it, the angel of death, when I see it, the angel of death will come in. You're passed from death to life. That's what the blood of Messiah accomplishes. When the blood of Messiah, when we're in covenant with him, we're passed from death to life. But what did they do with the body of the lamb in Egypt, in the house? They went in the house. They roasted it, they ate it, they got strength from it, and the next morning they walked out of slavery. The body of Yeshua is this. It's the word of God. It's the scriptures. And just as they didn't break any bones in Yeshua's body, it says the scriptures cannot be broken. This is what we feed on all the time so we have strength to walk in freedom. Too many believers have the blood of Yeshua in their lives They're passed from death to life, but they're still slaves to unrighteousness and sin and addiction. They're slaves in Egypt, and Pharaoh still calls the shots. What a miserable existence. 
Only one time in the history of the world was this blood put on the doorpost. Only had to be done once. Yeshua died once to put his blood on us. One time, but year after year after year after year after year at Passover, they ate the body of a lamb because they needed that strength continuously. We feed on this every day. We don't live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is what gives us freedom to stay out of Egypt. Gives us freedom to walk in righteousness and not be controlled by sin. This is it. And what did they do? What did he do with the bread that represented his body? He broke it. And back in Exodus, later, Moses is going to walk down from the mountain with two stone tablets that have the essence of the covenant on them. What happened to those tablets? They got broken. When Yeshua breaks this bread, when Luke brings out the bread was broken, and the other gospel writers mentioned this as well, it's a picture of the tablets being broken, the Torah being broken. So we see the blood going on, but here with the new, new covenant goes in. And just as they broke the original, Yeshua's body was broken for us. Now, the only place Brit Kadashah, renewed covenant, is mentioned in the Tanakh, in the Hebrew Scriptures, is here in Jeremiah 31. Look what it says. Behold, days are coming, declares Adonai. Now, you'll see that phrase, declares Adonai, several times in this passage. It's num Adonai. It means this is a profound statement, an eternal statement. Pay attention. When you see that declares a night, you have to picture a booming voice like a cannon. It's like, this is important. I'm not whispering here. I am shouting this. I am making this loud and clear. Behold, days are coming, declares a night, when I will cut a renewed covenant. Your translation says make, but you cut a covenant because an animal is involved. There's a cutting, a cutting opens. With who? The house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. And nothing wrong with the covenant. The problem was with them. They kept breaking my covenant. Their hearts were hard. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares Adonai. There it is again. But this is the covenant which I will make, I will cut with the house of Israel after those days, declares Adonai. I will put my Torah within them. I'm not going to throw the Torah away and replace it. I'm going to take the same Torah, it's going to go inside, and on their heart I will write it. What did Moses do with the blood of the covenant? Sprinkled on the outside of the people. What does Yeshua do with the blood of the renewed covenant? goes on the inside. It's a picture of God's Torah. The same Torah written on the heart. Now, when it's written on the heart, what that means is, we we, we say we learn things by heart. That means we memorized it. That's not what this means. When something is written on your heart, it means you desire to do it. You want to please God because it comes from a heart of love. So having the Torah written on your heart doesn't mean you know it word for word doesn't mean you have it memorized, even though that'd be great. It means I want to do it. I find this is my food. I have hunger pains for the word of God. 
And I will be their God. They shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, No, Adonai, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares Adonai. There it is again. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Ah, see what happens here? When Yeshua renews the covenant, it takes care of the problem of Torah. It takes care of the problem. The guilt and the sin and the punishment that the Torah dictates and prescribes for our rebellions and sin. She says, I take that. It's all forgiven. Here's the amazing thing. God's promise will never destroy humanity again. But People keep messing up. They keep sinning. They keep goofing. Abraham messed up at times. His children messed up big time. The children of Israel, even after they had the Torah and entered the covenant, they messed up. David messed up. Everybody's messing up. But then along comes a son of David. And Yeshua, he's a perfect, righteous king. He never messed up. And then Yeshua, he keeps the Torah perfectly. Not one single time does he misstep. So I didn't come to set the Torah aside. He came to fill it out, to live it out, so you'd see what it looks like. And the same Yeshua is a descendant of Abraham, of course. And through Yeshua's work, the human race is preserved. Yeshua comes, and because he's renewed this covenant and removed the sin aspect of it and brings forgiveness, we can enter into this new covenant with him, this renewed covenant. And guess what? Our life is preserved. We partner with God to bless the world, to be a blessing. We partner with God to be priest in this world. We partner with God as members of his kingdom, citizens of his kingdom on earth. Because after all, what's a covenant for? It's a promise that leads to a partnership. And through Yeshua, the door, our sins are forgiven. It's like we never sinned. We partner with our Messiah. We yoke ourselves to him. We walk with him. And his kingdom begins to invade the earth. And all these things that humans failed at, stumbled over, God's promises, they, like the song we sang, all his promises are true. And through Yeshua, the descendant of Noah, the descendant of Abraham, a member of the Mosaic Covenant, an Israelite, the son of David, it's all put back on track. It's all put back on track. What a Savior we've got. What an incredible Savior. And you notice all the covenants are named after people? Noah, Abraham, Moses, David. Who's the renewed covenant named after? It doesn't have a name. Because it's this covenant, the Mosaic covenant, as Jeremiah describes. It's the Torah written on the heart. It's not named after anybody. But Yeshua comes and says, okay, we need to fix this. It's like a marriage that falls apart. But over time, the two people who used to be married, they grow up 
They mature. And this time, there's a real love. It's not just a fleshly lust they have for each other, but now it's real love. They come back together, and they renew the vows. The covenant is renewed. The vows stay the same, but boy, their hearts are different. And I know several couples who are divorced. And over time, they came to be remarried, and what a beautiful marriage they made together. Okay? He renews the covenant. The prophets talk about how God divorces his bride Israel. But later, what does he do? He takes them back. He cleans them up. And he renews the covenant. And he embraces them again. And that latter marriage is so much better than the first one. Now this takes us right into the second question. Question number two comes from Lydia Genegas. I love her questions. She, she always asks really good ones. She says, the bread and cup, dink, the bread and cup, is there any relation between what we do on Erev Shabbat, on Friday evenings, you know, I'm sure probably most all of you, you know, the lady lit the candles, you had a blessing over the cup, the blessing over the bread, you had a wonderful meal. And uh, is there any relation between what we do on Erev Shabbat to communion in the evangelical world? I know the blessing over each one doesn't specifically mention Yeshua by name, but is he considered the bread of the earth and the fruit of the vine? And the answer is yes, absolutely. So we need a little history here. So what I have is a diagram. On the left side of the diagram, this left side of the dotted line is all Jewish. On the right side of the dotted line, we'll say this is Christendom. This is Christianity. The Passover Seder, as we've read, started back in Egypt, back in Exodus, and it has continued to the present day. Every year, the Jews come together and have a Passover Seder. They've added some traditions and wonderful things that adorn it, but it's just kept on going. But when Catholicism, so I'm going to put RC here, not for the cola, but for Roman Catholicism, Roman Catholicism kind of took the teachings of Yeshua and the, the, the Greek scriptures and divorced them from their, their Hebrew foundation, their Jewish foundation. And so Catholicism created this thing called the Mass, okay, where this wine actually literally becomes the blood of Yeshua. And the pieces of bread it literally become his body. It's this magical thing. And, uh, you know, that's why we, a lot of evangelical churches still have an altar, like this one here. It was out in front this morning. Because when they do communion, they do it at an altar. Only problem is, the only place you ever find an altar is in a temple. You never find it in a synagogue. But in Catholicism, they put an altar back into the churches. Okay? It's a unique thing. And then during the Reformation, the Mass was set aside, but it was replaced by communion. It was replaced by communion. Now, communion, I want everybody to hear me. I don't want everybody going around here spreading fake news. Communion is a beautiful, meaningful, good tradition. I encourage it. It's wonderful. I have nothing to say against it. All right? Is everybody clear on that? The only thing is it's not in the Bible. But that's okay. It's still beautiful and good and meaningful and wonderful, and I'm glad people do it. It's just not in the Scriptures. And that's okay. It's just okay. Do I need to keep doing this loop? <laughs> okay. 
It's, uh, it's just not there. But do it, by all means. Because communion is something that where the mass in Roman Catholicism was changed to something that's a little less strange. But remember when Yeshua was doing the bread and the wine, it was a Passover Seder. It's a Passover Seder. He said, do this in remembrance of me. The Passover Seder. The only problem with, with that is Passover rolls around only once a year in the spring. And it's amazing. It's like this incredible, great feast. It's so meaningful and beautiful and fun. The kids, they just soak this up. Those images and smells and experiences that stick in their brains. And, and it's like, the, how long till, till, till Passover again? It's fantastic. It's just great. But once a year is not often enough. We should celebrate God's redemption of Israel more than just once a year. And Yeshua, who died on Passover, rose three days later, we should celebrate that more than once a year. So what happens is that on Erev Shabbat, throughout the Jewish world, when the sun goes down on Friday night, like last night, Robin lights the candles, and we do some blessings, we sing a song or two, and and uh, bless the children if there are any there, and, and the wives bless the husbands, and the husband blesses the wife, and it's just beautiful. And then we raise a cup, and we say these ancient words, Baruch Adonai Eloheinu, Melako Olam, and Blessed are you, Adonai our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Those are the exact same words that Yeshua spoke at the wedding in Cana. Or not him, but the, the leader of the feast. Remember they ran out of wine? Mary says, son, Yeshua, we're out of wine. And they have a little conversation. And so Yeshua, he doesn't lift a finger. He tells the servants, okay, take these six empty water pots, fill them up with water. They fill them up with water. He says, okay, dip out some water. And they dip out some. Take it to the head of the, the wedding feast. And they're thinking, what's this all about? This does not make sense. They take it up, and by the time it comes to the lips of the head of the wedding feast, it's wine. And not only is it wine, it's the best wine of the night. And when he took that wine, the head of the wedding feast would have said these words, Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine, but who had created that wine? The head of the feast didn't know where they came from. The only ones that knew were Yeshua and his mother who was there, the apostles and the servants. It's all very hush-hush, very quiet. But they all looked at Yeshua differently after that. Because only God creates the fruit of the vine. And that was his first miracle. Now, after the, the cup, we have the blessing over the bread. Who brings forth bread from the earth. The very last thing Yeshua did as a, as a great sign was on his resurrection morning. And um, he hides his, his identity and he joins some disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. And he says, what are you talking about? Oh, we're talking about Yeshua of Nazareth. He rose from the dead this morning, haven't you heard? And they start acting like, where have you been? Well, he's been in the tomb, and he is Yeshua who rose from the dead, but he acts like he doesn't know this. 
And so as they go, he starts talking from the Torah, from the prophets and the writings, all those things about himself and how Yeshua had to fulfill, how the Messiah had to fulfill the prophecies. They still don't recognize him. It says their hearts burned within them. Then they came to an end. They'd walked all day. They came to an end, sat down to have a, a, a bite to eat, invited him to come. They, they asked him to do the bracha, the blessing. These are the exact same words he said. And look at that last line. Who brings forth bread from the earth. He said those words, he, he disappeared from their vision. Because who's the bread of life who came out of the earth just that morning? Sure. His entire life is bookended by these two blessings. His first miracle, and then this, you might call it the last kind of miraculous sign. The bread, the wine and the bread, it's all about him. And I was telling friends last night who were over, I said, you know, there's this this ancient blessing that takes place right here in between the blessing of the cup and the blessing of the bread. But when I've been to people's homes for Arab Shabbat, I... If I've heard it, I forgot it, but I, I always listen for it. I never hear this ancient blessing that goes in between. And I am challenging all of you to add it to your Erev Shabbat meals. So when you do the blessing over the cup, and before you do the one over the bread, I want you to insert the missing bit that should be there. This is what it is. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who sanctified us with his commandments, took pleasure in us, and with love and favor gave us his holy Shabbat as a heritage. It's a memorial of the creation, because God's our creator. A day which is the beginning of our sacred gatherings. Secondly, it's a memorial of our exodus from Egypt. He's our redeemer. You see that line? What it's saying is, this wine and this bread that we have every Friday night to start the Sabbath... It is a little mini Passover Seder. Takes place once a week in our homes. It's a memorial of the exodus from Egypt. So Jews, when they take the wine and the bread, they're thinking of the body and blood of the Passover lamb. Because it wasn't for that lamb, they realized they would not be sitting in freedom today and join an Arab Shabbat meal around the table. But for us who are Messianic, we're believers in Yeshua. What are we also thinking about? We're thinking about the blood and the body of the Passover lamb who took away the sins of the world, Yeshua. You see? So there may not be communion in the Bible, but there's Passover. And through Jewish tradition, Passover is celebrated every single week at the onset of Shabbat in the home. So we may not do communion here as a congregation, I guarantee a lot of you experienced it last night in your homes when you did the blessings over the cup and the bread. You get it? So let's be more intentional. As I know, I'm a glutton, all right. Confession's good for the soul. So many times you're doing the blessing over the wine, the bread, and it's like, (laughs) the wine, the bread, like the starting gun before we eat, you know? And it's like, I need to pause and really be more intentional. And really think about what's going on here. And I challenge all of you to do the same. And it goes on a bit. For us did you choose and us did you sanctify from every tribe and nation. 
Isn't that cool? Now, when Jews read that, they're thinking of all the nations and tribes, you chose the Jewish people. But the rabbis themselves say, this applies to Gentiles as well. Because the Gentile can pray this. God's chosen us from all tribes and nations, all different races and, and ethnicities. And your holy Shabbat with love and favor did you give us as a heritage. Blessed are you, Adonai, who sanctifies the Sabbath. Then you do the blessing over the bread. But this is the bit, this is the paragraph that goes between the two. All right? And I see, I never see, uh, 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 my brain is is fried. Valerie, thank you. Val's hand up. Valerie, go right ahead. Oh, it's in the Siddur. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, every Siddur you'll ever find that has the Arab Shabbat prayers, it's there. Yeah, it's a very ancient part. Oh, thank you. Yeah, in our Messianic doors, it's on page 25, right there. There you go. And, um, and also, you can download the visuals when you get home tomorrow. Sometime You'll get home before then, but tomorrow they'll be available. And you can print this out and add it in. Um, also, if you want to understand a little bit how this works, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about doing the blessings, doing the wine and the bread. We're not going to take time to read that. But... We'll, we'll finish up with this. Um, when we read back in Exodus where God establishes the covenant with Israel, he sprinkles the, Moses sprinkles the blood. Right in the next verse, he calls up 70 of the elders of Israel, Moses and Aaron, Nadav and Avihu, and I'm sure Joshua, 70 elders. They all go up and they have a covenant meal with God. It says they saw him, they saw God. They have this covenant meal to celebrate the fact that they're in covenant relationship with God. On Friday nights, or whenever we get together as a group, if you choose to do the blessing over the wine, the bread, and you have an oneg, you have a covenant meal, it is the same thing. And this is what Paul's describing in 1 Corinthians 11. Because the, the new believers, the young believers there in the book of Acts, this, the, these Gentiles who come to faith in Yeshua, every time they came in together as a group, to them, we are a group because we have one thing in common. We are all part of God's covenant through Yeshua, our Messiah and Savior. Let's celebrate that covenant. So they would have a meal. They never just had a little bit of bread and a little sippy cup of, you know, like a, a, a Sam's Club sample. It, they had a meal. It was a banquet. It was always a banquet, but they always saw it as a covenant meal because we are members of the covenant that Yeshua has renewed and invited us to be a part of. And uh, so let's do the bread and the wine to start the meal to remember what this is all about. So they did it on Shabbats. They would do it other times of the week. Love feasts are what they're called in Paul's writings. And uh, we would call them onegs. And uh, so there's, you can do this as often as you want, but it needs to be a meal where you're celebrating the covenant of Yeshua that he's renewed and has invited us into as partners of his promise to the world. I'm doing something a little new starting this week. I've taken all the scriptures and the, that I quoted and things I've read. I'm putting them at the end of the visual so when you get home, you can print them out. And don't miss this. At the very end, 
I've got the messianic blessings for the cup and the bread that was developed that were developed by the first century messianic community. The apostles themselves created a blessings for the cup and the bread. And this is what Paul and the others would have been using as a blessing when they came together for these love feasts. So you could read this. This is from the Didache. All right? Okay, we've really gone over, but I covered a lot. I feel like there might be a really pertinent question or comment or two. Is it okay if we take one or two? If you make them yes and no questions, I can answer them quickly. Uh, is there anything else? Uh, is that Tim? Tim, yes. Oh, yes, we have to wait for the microphone. There we go. Yes, sir. In uh, Luke 22, mm-hmm. uh, verse 20, um, when you have, you had up there on, on the screen that the, the word was translated renewed. Mm-hmm. What, is the, what is the word in the Greek um, that is being uh, translated or mistranslated as new? It's the word renewed? new. It is, it the, is word the word new. new. Yes, but uh, because anything that's renewed is new. But when you just see the word new, you may not realize it is renewed, okay? And uh, since in Hebrew, in Jeremiah, where it talks, the only place it talks about this coming new covenant, it's the word that can be translated new or renewed. And as we looked at what was actually taking place, we realized this is renewal of the covenant. It's the same Torah, same stipulations, but it's like it's going to be internalized. So it's renewal of that Mosaic covenant. It's an improved uh, version of it, okay? Yeah, the very good question. Thank you. Another very good question or comment. Anybody? Should we close? As I said at the beginning, um, we're scratching the surface on covenants, but hopefully I'm giving you enough of a foundation understanding. You can study these more on your own. I, I challenge you to go back and read about each one, and you'll see more things coming out and. Uh, but honestly, I'm going to tell you, I feel like a child teaching these things, like a child who gets to play with the crown jewels. Who am I to sit here and talk about these holy things the way they are? Oh, my goodness. Do you have any idea what a treasure God's given us? So, uh, but he, he says, yeah, here's the crown jewels. Play with them. Enjoy them. But uh, we need to grow up to really appreciate what we've got. So let's close. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for these questions that you inspired Joe and Lydia to ask. And I pray that the time we've spent in your word and thinking about these wonderful eternal things would be a blessing to your people. And it would help us to know you better, to serve you more like Yeshua did. And thank you, Father, for your promises to us through which we become partners with you. Thank you for removing the, our, our sins and, and taking the punishment we deserve so that we can walk in newness of life. And uh, we thank you how each of these covenants builds upon the one before. For your word is a story, the story of how you are once again bringing the garden to earth. You're invading the world with your presence. We thank you for that, Father. So, Lord, we are willing participants in your invasion. May you come quickly, Lord Yeshua. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
We ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen.